Any of you know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was? He was a German Christian who left us such great works like Life Together and The Cost of Discipleship. He got caught up in the resistance to the Nazi regime, and he was arrested in a plot to take out Hitler. And he was executed one month before the fall of Nazi Germany. And somewhere in one of his works, he said these words, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When God calls a man or a woman or a child to come to him, he bids him to come and die. I wonder what you think about that saying that he put so eloquently there. We're going to unpack that some today as we look at this passage in Philippians because he's echoing something that Jesus himself taught so clearly. For example, in the book of Matthew, we're told this. When Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is how we begin the Christian life, but it's also how we continue the Christian life as well. As we've been journeying through the book of Philippians, we've noted how Paul, who helped start this little church of followers in the Roman, or Roman colony rather, of Philippi some 10 years earlier, is now himself in prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus. And so he's writing back to his friends to encourage them to stand firm for the gospel, to not be intimidated by any of the threats that are coming at them from the outside. But he also raises an issue that is threatening to do, undo them from the inside. And there's, there's conflict that's going on that he's gotten word of. And so he wants to encourage them to love one another and to, to be encouraging and humble with one another. And so we've seen him say already in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, these words. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. As Paul seeks to pastor this little church from afar, he's encouraging them to let their love that they have for one another to actually abound more and more. And as we hear those words echo through time to us today, that's God's desire for our church as well, that our love for one another would abound more and more. But Paul has also gotten word of a very specific conflict that we're actually going to see brought up in chapter 4, but I want to pull that back in time to right now so that we can consider a little bit of what's going on. In chapter 4, he's going to write these words to the congregation. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Paul has heard about these two women who may have been among his very first converts there. We know of Lydia, when she converted, there were other ladies who converted with her to Christ. And they may be leaders in the church. We don't know exactly who they were. We don't know exactly what the conflict was, but it is threatening to divide the church so much that Paul has to, to bring this up and through this letter to the church to make specific entreaty to them to agree with one another in the Lord. And so he, he asked his true companion, his, his friend, and maybe the pastor of this church, to help these women to work through their conflict. And so let me just ask you this question. If you are Paul's true companion at this church, how would you go about helping these two people who are having serious conflict? What would be your strategy? I think some people might say, man, I've, I've got nothing. Maybe I would just try to help them figure out who is right and, and who is wrong. If that's your take on that, I just want to say good luck. That usually doesn't work very well. 
So we're going we're gonna to think about this passage we've been looking at in the last three studies of Philippians chapter 2 from a bird's eye perspective. And, and the root of what Paul's getting at here is he wants us to, to imitate the humility of Christ. And so today we're going to look at that passage one more time, think about it specifically in the context of conflict, conflict that you could have with someone else in the church or or even conflict that you could have in other people's lives. And let me just say, even if you're not a believer, if you do what Paul is calling you to do in this, you're going to see some beautiful fruit come from so much in your life. And so let's dig into this text, and I'm going to work us through it one more time really fast. I'm going to give you two implications of this, and then I'm going to tell you a story about my wife and me and World War III, a time when my pride got in the way and I almost blew up a church over it. So that's coming. (laughs) So Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 these words. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, of having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He basically says to them, look, if there's any evidence of the work of God in your life together as a community of faith, if there's any love and natural affection coming to you because of your union with one another in Christ, then make my joy complete by having the same love, the same mind, being in full accord and of one mind. He goes on in verse 3, and this is so key. Do nothing from selfish ambition, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul is telling them these words. He may have specifically in mind the conflict that Yodia and Syntyche are having, that's causing division in this church, that's threatening to wreck it. And so he, he goes in and calls them to humility. And that triggers a thought in Paul's mind. He's going to build on that thought. He's going to say, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I love the way the New International Version translates it. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So Paul wants these Philippian Christians, and he wants us to adopt the mindset that Jesus had. And that's when he gives us these beautiful words. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited, we might say, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So note, my friends, what Paul is showing us here is the descent of Jesus into humility. He wants us to adopt a similar mindset. Have this mind among yourselves, this mindset among yourselves. And he brings up Jesus, who emptied himself, took the form of a slave, was born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So you see what Paul is highlighting for us? He's highlighting the descent of Jesus into further and further humility. He goes on in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is, or Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Here, after talking about the descent of Christ, he talks about his ascent. The therefore of God means that God highly exalted Jesus. Let's start at the bottom. Gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what is that mindset of Christ? If I can summarize it for us, it looks something like this. It's a willingness to humble yourself daily in various circumstances and situations you find yourself, to humble yourself, trusting God with the results, trusting God to exalt you at the appropriate time. When this kind of sets into our mindset, we can see it all over the place in Scripture. Just let me give you a, a few examples from the book of Psalms. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Through the prophet Isaiah, God says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Or James, the brother of Jesus, would say in the New Testament these words, He, that is God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So this mindset of Christ is a mindset that is willing to humble ourselves, trusting God to exalt us. And what God wants to do, Paul is saying, is he wants to imprint this pattern of Christ into your life, into your daily life. And so to emphasize this, I want to, to serve you today in the best way I can think of. And I want to do it by borrowing a concept from a guy named Paul Miller, in his book called The J-Curve, subtitled Dying and Rising with Jesus in Everyday Life. This is the imprint that God wants to place into your life. A journey of humility, death to yourself, resurrection, and then exaltation. And so we see that pattern in that very passage we looked at, starting with Christ humbling himself, and then ending with God exalting him to the highest place and giving him the name above every name. In the book, The J-Curve, Paul Miller writes these words. The normal Christian life. Get this, my friends. This is not the exception. This is not every once in a while, occasionally, when we get around to it. The normal Christian life, he says, repeatedly reenacts the dying and rising of Jesus. I call it the J-Curve, because like the letter J, Jesus' life first went down into death and then up into resurrection. The J-curve, he says, is the normal shape of the Christian life. And if Paul Miller is right, and I think he is, as he looks at what Paul is saying and, and brings this to the forefront to our attention, that means the normal Christian life should take the form of this J-curve, where you are normally, habitually, all the time, humbling yourself and trusting God with the results of that. And so, my friends, I wonder how familiar you are with this concept. Yes, you say, I know I'm supposed to humble myself. It's not the first time we've talked about this, Pastor. But if we were to sit down for coffee and I were to ask you this question, how are you learning to die and rise with Jesus in your everyday life? Would that question make sense to you? Would you be immediately aware of the ways that, 
that you're seeking to die to yourself and trusting God with the results? Are you learning how to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus and trusting in God's good time, he will raise you up? Here's another question, which will lead into the rest of our time together. If the J-curve is the normal Christian life of daily dying and rising with Jesus, then what are the implications? If this template that God wants to imprint on your life and mine of humbling ourselves, denying ourselves, and allowing God to raise us and exalt us in due time, if that's the case, then what are the implications? Well, the first one is very obvious. The J-curve invites us to die to ourselves. Let's bring up our friends, Yodia and Syntyche. The conflict that they're having in Philippi. I wonder if when this letter was read in the congregation, they were convicted and heard Paul saying something like this. Yodia and Syntyche, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value each other above yourselves, looking not only to your own interests, but also to each other's. Adopt the mindset of Jesus with each other, who humbled himself. I wonder if they were to take these words that Paul is saying here, and then the example that Jesus used, how they would have heard Paul addressing their conflict. What would it look like if, if they were to put into practice exactly what Paul is getting at here? There's this place in the Gospels in which Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I was reminded of this this past week when I was working in my garden, and I don't know about your house, but I have like a gazillion acorns in my yard right now. And so I'm trying to clean out my garden, and I don't want the hundreds of thousands of acorns that are there to spring up and cause acorns to grow in my garden. So I'm sitting there kind of trying to pluck these out. My daughter Miranda was helping me trying to get these out. And, and some of them had gotten deep enough into the soil where they did what Jesus is saying here. They, they technically died. And in that death, they released this taproot that went down and is burying down. And from that, a tree will come. Unless a seed dies, it cannot bear fruit. And so Yodia and Syntyche need to see that in this situation, when Paul calls them to humble themselves, he's inviting them to die. And so if you were to talk with Yodia and Syntyche about their conflict and to help them through, how might you go about doing that? And I would suggest to you that instead of focusing on how you're right, Yodia, and the other person, Syntyche, is 100% wrong, what can you do to own, or what can you own in this conflict? Can you humble yourself and own 100% of your part. And I say the same thing to the other. Even if you believe that 90% of the conflict is their fault, is there 10% of it that you yourself can own? Now, I know when there's a conflict, it's so easy to focus on the other person and what they've done wrong and how boneheaded they are and how this conflict wouldn't be happening if they weren't the way they were. I get that. I get that. But is there something that you can own? Can you own 100% of your 10% of this conflict? I'm not asking you to own 100% of the conflict, you audience and Tiki and my friends. I'm asking you if you can own 100% of your part of it. And it may be even something like this. 
I'm sorry for the way I handled myself in our conflict. Could we start over again? I want to hear things from, I'm sorry, I want to hear things from your perspective. Could you humble yourself at least in that degree? And maybe, maybe what you're owning there is the fact that you got so mad in this conflict you couldn't see straight and you thought the worst about them. Could you just own 100% of your part if it's just your reaction to what they did and humble yourself? And my friends, I say this, this, this works so often. Unless you're dealing with narcissists, and that's another strategy. So I know some of you are thinking, I know narcissists in my life. Okay, we're talking about kind of normal folks here. For you to humble yourself, what would that look like? My friends, I find it almost impossible to do without humbling myself before the Lord first. Saying, okay, God, what have I done wrong in this? Help me to see my part of this. Help me to see my sin. Help me to see what I coming up short. So I think that's part of what Paul is getting at, bringing up this glorious example of, of Jesus who humbled himself. He died to himself so that we might live. And so the J-curve, my friends, invites us to die to ourselves. Here's another implication. The J-curve devastates self-righteousness. The J-curve, this template of humbling ourselves, dying to ourselves, trusting God with resurrection and exaltation, this devastates self-righteousness. Paul Miller, again in his book, says these words. What do we do instead of living the J-curve? What's our default way of operating? Simple. We boast. The J-curve goes down, and we want to go up. I don't know about you, but when I get in a conflict, I want to exalt myself. I want to prove that I am right. And that becomes the end game. So if we think about Yodia and Syntyche, my guess is that both of them are wanting to exalt themselves. They're thinking of themselves first in this conflict. And they want to put the other down to prove that they themselves are, are righteous, are right in this situation, and the other person is wrong. I want you to think about a conflict that you've gotten into. I don't care about how it started and all that. But a conflict that you got into, and you were sure that you were right. What do you do with that in the moment? I want to give you a word of caution. Be careful when you think you are right. You may be right, but be careful when you think you are right, because what you do with that can be very dangerous. Why? Because we love to exalt ourselves even at the expense of others. I was having a meeting with a friend of mine this week and I was talking about how God has been at work in my life and teaching me this very thing. And I remember one time reflecting on just some of the ways that I handle conflict. And God gave me the very distinct impression and it went something like this. John, you're never more dangerous than when you think you're right. Why? Because I can, I can be quick with my words. I can put others down. I can, I can boast and say, well, at least I'm not like them. Be careful. My friends, be careful. When you think you're right, because what you do with that can be very dangerous. Why? 
because we love to exalt ourselves even at the expense of others. Let me just use Paul himself as an example. In the book of Galatians, he said this, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. If you know the story of the Apostle Paul, before he became a Christian, he was perhaps the lead Pharisee in seeking to extinguish the Jesus movement. And he oversaw the execution of the very first Christian. He thought he was doing God's will. He thought he was right. And he was willing, if we can put it this way, to become a religious terrorist. To destroy other people because he thought he was right. Later in the book of Philippians chapter 3, we're going to see Paul tell us these words. If someone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's like, all right, if you want to boast... I can boast. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He looks back at before he became a Christian about how he was building his own resume, how he was advancing in Judaism beyond others of his age among his people. As he thinks about that, do you see what he's doing? He's exalting himself. If anyone dared to question him, instead of dying to himself, he's affecting his own resurrection, his own exaltation. See, my friends, Paul was using religion as a platform to display his greatness to others. And if he can do that, could we do that too? Could we use Christianity to show other people how great we are? See, this was Paul's fatal flaw. And he was on his way to Damascus with papers to arrest more Christians, to put them on trial. And then he met the resurrected Jesus in glory so bright that he was blinded from this encounter. And in this moment, when Jesus confronted him about persecuting him, Paul might be thinking, I was persecuting these followers of Jesus. Jesus says, no, you're persecuting me. God had mercy on him and commissioned him to be one of his foremost proclaimers of the gospel to the Roman Empire. And so, my friends, I bring all this up because the Christian life begins when we kneel before the cross of Christ. The whole Christian life begins in an act of humility. And there's a sense in which we should always be on our knee before the cross of Christ, humbling ourselves. In fact, Paul would write to the Colossians and the Christians in Colossae and, and say these words. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. How did you receive the Lord Jesus Christ? You humbled yourself. You confessed your sins. You, you confessed your need for a Savior, and he had mercy on you. So my friends, be very careful. When you find yourself thinking you're in the right, and you may be, but what do you do with that when you're in the right? Well, let me illustrate that in my own life, my little story about my wife and me and World War III. World War III, of course, is a reference to the fight to end all fights, basically, that Heather and I went through. And it all started when my normally otherwise sane wife lost her mind, or at least... That's what I thought. 
She's looking at me thinking, my otherwise sane husband, which is probably a very generous description, has lost his mind. And we got into such a tiff that we did not talk to each other for three days. It started on a Thursday. <laughs> this last week, I was talking with Heather, asking her if I can talk about this. And we were racking our brains trying to remember what it was we fought about. We could not even remember. <laughs> but this fight that ignited and, and lasted for three days was terrible. And I was just convinced that I was right and she was wrong. She was convinced that she was right and I was wrong. I'm sitting there going, I'm not going to apologize this time. I'm always the first one to make the move. And she's thinking, I'm not going to apologize this time. I'm always the first one to make the move. And so we kind of went to our corners. And it was icy cold in our house. And on Saturday morning one time, we, uh, during that fight, we had to take Jason to a basketball game. 45 minutes on the other side of Calgary. And so we're in the car, and it's just icy cold. We get to the gymnasium. Heather goes up in the bleachers, sit over here. I walk all the way down to the other end to sit over there. I was not going to sit by my wife. So Jason, our poor son, has to look for his parents on both sides over there. We came back home Saturday afternoon, and I'm just mad as I can be, and I go out to the garage, sitting underneath my heater with my pipe in my hand, just puffing away and just thinking, I don't need all this. I don't need this. I don't need this grief in my life. And, you know, if worst comes to worst, I'm just going to resign being the pastor because I'm not going to apologize for nothing. And so I'm sitting there stewing, and I'm getting mad at God because I'm like, I don't want to get up and talk about Jesus tomorrow. I don't. I don't want to talk about this person who's kind and gentle. I don't want to talk about this person who humbled himself. I don't. I want to sit here in my own righteousness, my own exaltation. I'm getting madder by the minute because I'm thinking, how can I get out of preaching tomorrow? And just then, the door to the garage opens up. My wife comes out. I'm sitting there in my chair, and I'm just like, I'm not going to move. I'm not going to flinch. And she said, we don't have to talk about it right now, but I just want to tell you that I loved you. She put her arms around me. And to my shame, I remained hard as a rock. I kept puffing away. I did not even acknowledge her existence, and she went back inside. That's how messed up your pastor is. <clears throat> so I'm like, all right, fine, I'll preach tomorrow. After a little while, I went to my office and started going over my notes. <clears throat> and even though these exact words didn't come into my mind, the impression did that, John, you follow Christ and you need to die to yourself. You need to crucify your pride and you need to go and talk to your wife. So I did. I went to her, wrapped my arms around her, told her, I'm sorry and I love you. And we both were boohooing at that moment. And like I said, we don't remember now what that fight was. That was probably about 10 years ago in our marriage. But it was so dumb and so stupid. But I thought I was right. And what I did with that, I almost gave up on my marriage. And I almost was willing to quit being a pastor of the church just to prove how right I was. This is why your pastor, by the way, needs Jesus. <laughs> I told this to the church the very next day. And it's really interesting that one of the fruit that came from that was people came to me and said, John, we need help in our marriage. And even though you say, yes, we 
are all more broken and jacked up and sinful than we have the courage to admit. Yet in Christ, we can experience more love and grace and forgiveness from the Father than we ever dare dream. It wasn't until I shared some of my own brokenness that people were like, oh, a pastor's not perfect, and he needs Jesus. And I want to hear more about this Jesus. And so, my friends, when we humble ourselves... Manny, my iPad just froze. I'm going to need you to go forward with me on this. When we humble ourselves, wait, go back. (laughs) When we humble ourselves and reenact the story of Jesus, we give up power, we give up control, and maybe even status. And we entrust ourselves to the Lord who brings life from death. So my friends, I'm wondering if you can see that in your own life. I'm wondering if you can trust the Lord with that in your life. Next slide, Manny. My job is to do the dying. God's job is to bring new life. Whereas Paul Miller says, we do the dying, God does the resurrecting. And so, friends, part of finding joy right where you are is learning to daily die to yourself right where you are and wait and see how God will bring new life. Mercy Hill Church. May you excel in the grace of dying and rising with Jesus in your everyday life.